If you would, go ahead, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Mark. Uh, the book of Mark, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to borrow one, there's some on the back table there. We're going to be looking at a lot of pages tonight, so, so you're going to want to have that, or at least a uh, friend next to you who can turn. Um, we're going to look at the entire Gospel of Mark tonight. Uh, and let me tell you the reason that I'm doing that. Um, the reason we want to go through an entire gospel in probably the next 45 minutes is, is because I've noticed that when it comes to the gospels, a lot of times people miss the forest because of the trees. Uh, most studies going through the gospels are usually verse by verse. Uh, occasionally, you know, maybe you'll look at a whole chapter, which is great, it's needed, but sometimes you miss the, the overarching purpose of the gospel. And so you need to kind of take a step back and look at it as a whole. Um, so tonight I hope you walk away with an understanding of the main purpose of the Gospel of Mark and not just a few verses. Also, I hope you gain a, a new appreciation for, for the Gospels, in particular the Gospel of Mark. I'm hoping that when you go home tonight, you're going to want to read through the entire Gospel. Um, uh, I, I hope that you uh, come to understand the great complexity of this gospel, yet at the same time there's this relentless pulse that goes through the whole thing, driving us into worship of Jesus. Um, so before we start digging into this, uh, perhaps I should explain what a gospel is. Um, you've got four of them, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but what exactly is a gospel? Um, I define a gospel as a biographical sermon. A biographical sermon. Um, they are biographies because they're about a person. But the people who wrote the Gospels are much more interested than just giving you the cold, hard facts. They, they don't want to just lay out the facts before you. They are going to write these facts in a way to persuade you of something, in a way uh, to convince you of something. Uh, kind of like what I do when I preach. I'm going to give you the facts, but I want to persuade you and convince you of something. And so uh, a gospel is a biographical sermon. And so you see this in Mark. You know, Mark had so many miracles he could have drawn from, so many teachings he could have drawn from, but he picks certain ones puts them in certain places in order to convince us, to teach us of some certain truth. He's preaching to us through this biography. And so he's going to give us facts, but he's got a purpose behind that. Um, Mark is the oldest gospel, um, easily written within living memory of those who knew Jesus. Uh, most of Mark is contained in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke. As a matter of fact, if something were to happen and Mark were to fall out of your Bible, you would actually have 95% of it contained in Matthew and in Luke. Uh, most of it is there. It's this, uh, Luke and Matthew drew heavily from Mark when they were writing. Mark was a disciple of Peter. And so when you read through Mark, what you're getting is actually Peter's account of the life of Christ. And this is really going to shine through as you go through the Gospel of Mark. Um, so that's a little introduction. Now let's just go ahead and dig in. Uh, go to chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first nine verses. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Um, Pray with me. Our Father, we are thankful that we get to gather under your name in this building. And we get to hear from your word. We get to hear you speak to us. And I pray that would happen in this moment. I pray your spirit would give us sharp minds, open hearts. Give us eyes to see um, the words in here that you would have us to see. God, I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Mark tells us in the very first line what his aim is. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he's going to show us that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, he's the Jewish king, the Jewish deliverer, and he is, more importantly, really the Son of God. Um, So right off the bat, we're told this, and it's like we're being let in on a little secret in in Mark. He's letting us know this. But nobody else, as you go through the gospel, is really going to get this. We as the reader know this, but nobody else is going to. Um, Not a single human being throughout Mark will come to understand Jesus as the Son of God while Jesus is still living. Not one. You're going to have demons recognizing him as the Son of God. You're going to have voices from heaven recognizing him as the Son of God. But there's not going to be another person who does it. And over and over again, things are going to happen, and, and people are going to ask questions like, who is this? Or we're going to be like, he's the son of God, but, but people will miss it. So, so we're let in on this secret, and, and we're going to look more on this theme as we go through it. And when Jesus is introduced as this, in the very first line in this book, you notice right off the bat that this is going to be different than any other biography. You realize that just in the uh, 11 verses that we read that introduced Jesus. Because we know nothing about his childhood. We know nothing about his family. We don't really know where he came from. Jesus just all of a sudden appears, fully grown, doing things. And that's not how you write a biography. You know, typically you want to write about the past. You want to write about the family. You want to write how he was born. But Mark's having none of that. He doesn't have time for such pleasantries. Mark starts like like a roaring lion, and he's just going to keep on roaring. 
He's going to keep on going. He begins by quoting from Isaiah concerning John the Baptist. Look at those verses two and three. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Now that word straight there is one of the dominant themes in the book of Mark. The Greek word is eutheos. Um, other places it's translated immediately or immediate. Because everything Jesus does is going to be immediate. Uh, just in the first chapter alone, Jesus immediately saw the heavens opened up. The Spirit immediately drives him out into the wilderness. Jesus immediately calls his disciples and they immediately drop their nets and follow him. He immediately enters a synagogue and teaches. And immediately, someone with an unclean spirit cries out. And after healing him, Jesus immediately leaves and goes to Simon's house, where he is immediately told about Simon's sick mother-in-law. And so you get this immediate, immediate, immediate. It's just, the, the, the pace is relentless. You kind of feel yourself being pushed along in the book of Mark. And Mark uses the word immediately over 40 times in his gospel, which is more than the rest of the New Testament put together. And so he's pushing us, pushing us at this pace. Another way that Mark pushes us is by briefly moving into the present tense for a story. Typically when you're telling a story, you tell it in the past tense, how something happened. Um, occasionally if you wanna make something really vivid, or really intense or urgent, you can move it into the present tense. And Mark does this. Um, look at verse 12. Here's just one of the cases. It says, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now your drove is past tense. In your Greek, it's present tense. It's the spirit immediately drives him out into the wilderness. I mean, you get that sense of almost like he's being pushed into the wilderness. But there's a reason your translators don't translate it in the present tense. It's because Mark switches from the past into the present 151 times in his gospel. I mean, you might expect two or three times just to like make something urgent, make something vivid. Mark is like every single story, he jumps into the present, goes back into the past, jumps into the present, goes back into the past. And for kind of a modern Western reader, that's really confusing. It's too vivid, too urgent. And so most translators just keep it all in the past. But Mark wants to push us fast towards something. Uh, I kind of feel like when I'm reading this, like I'm driving and you get a yellow light, you know, you don't slow down, you speed up. Then you get another yellow light, you speed up. And it's like, you know, you keep doing that, you're making record time. When you're reading through Mark, you kind of feel like that. He's like, push, push, and you're just flying, flying, flying. You're like, well, what is he taking us to at such a fast pace? Let's look at the pace of Mark in just the first chapter alone. This is what happens in just the first chapter of Mark. Jesus is baptized. He's declared to be the son of God by his father. 
He's driven into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. John the Baptist is arrested. Jesus begins preaching. He calls all of his disciples. He casts out a demon. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals all the sick in an entire city. He goes to a desolate place and he prays by himself. He preaches throughout all of Galilee. He casts out even more demons and he heals a leper. All in the first chapter. When you're reading, you're like, when does he sleep? I mean, when does he, when does he even have time to eat? He's doing all of these things at this relentless pace. And Mark puts so many miracles. He includes 17 miracles in just such a short book, which is more than all the other gospels. And I think the reason that Mark is doing this, he's pushing us so much, and he shows Jesus moving with such urgency, is because he wants us to look at ourselves and ask the question, are we living life with the same urgency? Are we? He wants us to have that same singular purpose. Nothing would distract Jesus. He would immediately do this, immediately do this. He didn't have time to be distracted. He had a purpose. And I think this is really relevant for our culture that spends so much time trying to distract itself. We have so many time killers. You know, whether it's Facebook or a computer or, or it's, you know, cable TV, we, we are so entertainment driven and we go to those things and we just kind of forget about our purpose. And Mark is slapping us around saying, no, we, we need to go hard in this direction. We're to make our path straight and not just wander around trying to entertain ourselves. And so I think this is one of the reasons that Mark is pushing this so much. As the church We've been given a purpose, and we can't be distracted from it. All right, we've got to ask the question, what is the event that Mark is pushing us towards? Let's look at verse 9. This is going to give us a hint of this. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. All right, when Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens are described as being torn open. It's a very violent word in Greek. It's, it's being ripped, shredded, torn open. Uh, Matthew and Luke, when they describe this, they use a much tamer word. They just say, you know, the, the heavens were opened. But Mark is like, no, the heavens weren't opened. They were torn. Mark only uses this word one other time in his gospel. Go to Mark chapter 15. And here we see the death of Jesus. Mark chapter 15. We'll begin reading in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Notice the parallels. 
we have Jesus being baptized. He comes out. The heavens are torn open. And then you have a declaration by the Father. This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. You go to the end of the book at the cross. Jesus dies, which is also kind of his baptism. Right afterwards, it says the temple veil is torn. And then we have a declaration. Truly, this is the Son of God. And so these are kind of the bookends in Mark. Where you have the tearing of the heavens and the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. And you have the tearing of the temple veil and the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. You have it at the start of his gospel. You have it at the end of his gospel. And Mark is saying you need to read everything in the middle in light of this event. Of the heavens being opened up to us because of the death of Jesus. They are literally torn open. I'm going to look at, come back to these bookends in a little bit, but just know that Mark's point is he's driving us straight to the cross. That's where he's going, straight there. This might be a good time for me to tell a few other little literary devices that Mark uses to kind of bring these points home. Um, we've already looked how he uses the word immediate a lot. He goes into the present tense. Um, but he also uses bookends a whole lot. I, I'm going to call them Markin sandwiches um, because it's like you have the two pieces of bread and you have the jam in the middle. He's going to tell a story using kind of an A, B, A pattern. All right? Um, turn to chapter 11. We'll look at one. Chapter 11, verse 12. Let me read it to you. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning, they, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. All right, so here we have the story of Jesus going into the temple and cleansing it out. Right before this story, we have Jesus walking up to a fig tree. Right after this story, we have Jesus walking to a fig tree. There's your sandwich, all right? So the, uh, uh, the, the pieces of bread are Jesus going up to a fig tree, and the, we'll call it the jam. The jam in the middle is Jesus going into the temple. And what happens is the the two pieces of bread shed light on what happens in the middle, and what in the middle also sheds a little bit of light of what happens on the two pieces of bread. And so 
what's happening here is Jesus is going into um, the temple and he's expecting to find fruit. He's expecting for there to be prayer, expecting for there to be worship, and it's not. And so he starts overthrowing things. He essentially curses the temple. He shuts it down. And the fig tree sheds light on that. Jesus went to the fig tree right before it, expecting fruit. He was hungry. There's nothing. He curses it. Goes to the temple. Finds the same thing. And then they go back out to the fig tree, and they're like, look, it's withered. It's dead. And he's like, I know. Just like the temple worship is dead. And so you have those two pieces of bread shedding light on what happens in the middle. We'll look at one more. And uh, for those of you in home groups, we might look at a few more of these in home groups. Um, turn to Mark chapter 3. I, I like this one just because it's somewhat shocking. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And by the way, after the, the service, I'm going to be up in my office. For those of you who have more questions going through Mark, I'll stay up there as long as you want as we can walk through this. Mark three twenty. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men. And whoever blasphemies, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Okay. This is somewhat shocking. The, the two pieces of bread are an introduction of Jesus' family. You have uh, his mom and his family trying to stop Jesus because they think he's out of his mind. He's crazy. And so then Jesus goes into this teaching moment here, and he ends by saying, you know what? Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. And blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is uh, crediting the devil with something that the Lord is doing. Um, and then it goes back to his family. And they're like, Jesus, come to us. We're your family. He's like, who is my family? And so... You have those two pieces of bread shedding light on what's going on in the middle, and then the jam is shedding light on what happens in those two pieces of bread. And what is going on here is really strong. Jesus is telling his family, 
who says, you're out of your mind, you're crazy. He's saying, hold off, you're getting awfully close to something. You're getting really close to something when you call me crazy. That is almost blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and that is not forgivable. You're crediting what I'm doing with a work of craziness or a work of the devil. Then it goes back to his family again. And this is so like Jesus saying this about his family that Matthew and Luke just drop that out. They don't put the story about his family saying, you're out of your mind. They just drop that out. Uh, they, they try to uh, maybe soften a little bit because they have a different purpose they're getting to and they don't want us to get distracted by that. But Mark is very harsh and very blunt here. And you're going to find these sandwiches all throughout Mark. Shedding light, those two pieces of bread, shedding light on what's going on in the middle. Um, we don't have time to go through any more, but there's two in chapter 14 alone. If you want to write these down, there's uh, 14, 1 through 11. The story about the beautiful woman who breaks open the alabaster jar and anoints Jesus' feet. That's in the context of a Markin sandwich. Um, and also verses 54 through 67, which contrasts Peter warming himself by the fire and then what happens to Jesus on trial then going back to Peter. And so y'all, y'all can look at those. All right, another literary device that Mark uses is he loves the number three. Loves it. He groups things in threes. Um, So much so, you almost think he's borderline crazy. I'll give you a few. We have three boat scenes of Jesus when Matthew and Luke only have one. Three times Jesus casts out demons and silences them. Three times Jesus predicts his death. Each one of these becoming progressively more detailed. Pilate asks the crowd three questions. There are three three hour intervals on the cross. There's the third, the sixth the ninth hour. Um, and he's, Mark's, he's not just doing this because it's cool. Like, this is really cool. You know, if I could somehow work in like a bunch of threes, see if people could break the hidden code of Mark. Um, he's using this because he's, think of him as hammer blows. He wants to hammer certain truths into us. And so he repeats it and he repeats it and he repeats it. And one of the most obvious ways you see this is concerning the disciples. Um, Three times the disciples fail to understand the parables. Three times the disciples are said to have hardened hearts. Three times Jesus commands the disciples to keep awake and watch with him, followed by the disciples falling asleep three times. Peter denies Jesus three times. You you could go on. They're kind of like those hammer blows. We want you to understand who the disciples are. And so we're just going to pound this in you. What he's hammering home to us is that the disciples continually failed Jesus. Not once, not twice, three times. And like all these different ways, they continually failed him. I mean, and for one, this speaks of the authenticity of Mark. Remember, this is really Peter's kind of gospel. Do you think Peter wants to, hey, I'm going to write about Jesus and about us, and I'm just going to write about all of our failures. Do you think he wants this? He's being truthful here. Saying, hey, I was one of the 12, and you know what? We failed over and over and over. And so Mark communicates this. And I think the reason Mark groups so many of the disciples' failures in threes is because he wants us to identify 
with those failures. He wants to draw us into that. It's like, hey, even the 12 continually fail, but you know what? Jesus called them. Jesus is moving them towards faith. And so he's drawing us into that. All right, I don't want to run out of time. Um, so let's go ahead and go to Mark 8. Mark 8 is what you would call the hinge chapter in the gospel. Uh, just like Matthew 16 is for Matthew. It's uh, when Peter makes his declaration. That's usually like the hinge event. Everything kind of turns um, when Peter makes his declaration of Jesus. Um, but I want us to kind of use some of the things we've learned about Mark to understand this better. And so we're going to backtrack before that declaration. We're going to read the miracle before it in verse 22. And I love this. It's really unusual. Um, and let me just say, when we get to this point in Mark, after this hinge point, when, this is when Jesus starts talking about the cross, everything slows down for Mark. Almost every immediate was done before this. Not all of them, but most of them. You could fit all of the gospel, if you counted the days, all of the gospel Mark into one month. Um, but here, when you get to the midpoint of the gospel, he slows down and it hits the Passion Week. You have seven chapters on one week of Jesus' life. It's, it's kind of like you're watching this movie and it gets to the climax and it goes in slow motion. It's like, all right, now we're kind of where I want to lead you and we're going to really take our time through this final week. And so that happens right after kind of this hinge chapter in Mark 8. Well, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on him and on his eyes again. And he opened up his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. All right. What a bizarre, bizarre story. It's only in Mark. Anytime there's a story that is only in Mark, pay close attention to it. Because remember, 95% of the other stories are in Matthew and in Luke. So something really unique is happening here. With Jesus healing this person, and it doesn't take. How Unmark is that, in which everything Jesus does is immediate. Touches a person, immediately the lame jump up. Touches the mute, immediately they speak. Touches the blind, immediately they see. I mean, all throughout, this is the first time you have a miracle and it's not immediate. So it like kind of jumps out at you. You're like, what in the world? Did Jesus make a mistake here? What, what's going on? Why, why does he have to touch him again in order for him to 
get his sight. Mark is setting you up for something. Once again, he's drawing you in the story, and now he wants you to understand what comes right after that. When he asked Peter, or the disciples, what are people saying about me? And they're like, well, some are saying Elijah, some the prophet, whatever. And then he says, Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ. Thou art the Christ. Notice something is missing in Peter's declaration here. In Matthew, he says, thou art the Christ, son of the living God, but not in Mark. It's just, thou art the Christ, period. I'm sure he said, thou art the son of the living God, but Mark's point here is that he doesn't get it. <laughs> he doesn't get it. And so he just has Mark, or Matthew, or sorry, Peter, just saying, thou art the Christ. Because right after this, look what Jesus does. He starts telling him first thing, well, all right, you say I'm the Christ, but know that I've got to suffer, I've got to be rejected, I've got to be killed. And then Peter says, uh-uh, no, absolutely not. And so Jesus calls Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And so you see right there that Peter doesn't really see Jesus for who he is, even though he made that declaration. That's why Mark has that miracle right before it. He's like, you know what? Even with the disciples, there needs to be a continual touching. There's this moment of sight, but not quite. And Jesus is going to have to keep hammering this in with the disciples so they see who he is clearly. They don't understand what it means to be the son of God. Not yet. They still see men walking around like trees. They're still confused. And so we, we, we see how Mark does these things, how he's unpacking these things here for us. Now in the very first line of Mark, we're told that Jesus is the Son of God. And I said it was like we were let in on a secret that nobody else knows. Like Mark doesn't even let Peter know it. Doesn't even let Peter declare it, that he's the Son of God. Instead, what you have throughout the entire book of Mark is Jesus doing amazing stuff and people sitting around going, who are you? They, they always just ask the question, who are you? You know, after Jesus cast out a demon in Mark chapter 1, it says this, and they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. In Mark 2, Jesus forgives the paralytic man. And their response is, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? In Mark 4, after Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and he calms the raging sea, his disciples look at him and scared to death and are like, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? No longer we're like, he's the son of God because we know we've been let in on the secret. And we're like, it's the son of God, but they don't get it. In Mark 6, when Jesus is in his hometown, they ask, where did this guy come from? Isn't he just the carpenter? Isn't he Mary's son? And he even go on to name his siblings. They're like, uh, isn't his brother James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon with us? Aren't his sisters here with us too? Who is he? And so the identity of Jesus is continually raised. People are over and over asking, who is this man after everything he does? And no one recognizes him as the son of God 
while he is living, no one, not even Peter in his confession. Mark is saving this confession because this is where the hammer falls. This is, this is where he wants us to, to really focus in. Turn to Mark 15 and let's revisit that book end where the temple veil is torn. Mark 15. And no one records the cross like Mark. No one does. Um, Mark shows Jesus to be so utterly forsaken in a way that the other Gospels don't. Um, the religious leaders forsake him. The Roman rulers, his own family, his hometown does. Uh, his closest friends. Um, even his father forsakes him. It's here in the Gospel of Mark that we hear the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and you actually have this little interesting detail at the end of chapter 14 that, that I love. It says that when Jesus was arrested, they tried to seize one of his followers and they grabbed him and they ripped off his cloak and he ran away naked off because he didn't want, he, he forsook Jesus even when it meant running away without any clothes on. And most people think that's Mark. Because nobody else would know that. And so like Mark's even kind of putting that little teeny note there. Like, there, there was this young man <laughs> who like, even had his clothes stripped away and fled and wouldn't be identified with Jesus. And so Mark presents Jesus as utterly forsaken in a way that the other Gospels, they, they, they talk about it, but not like Mark. And here in chapter 15, we get to the cross finally. This is where he's been pointing all along is the cross. Look at verse 37. There's so much we could unpack here. Verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, it was, that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So when the centurion hears Jesus cry out or shout, which was likely to tell us die, it is finished, and he hears that cry, he realizes this was no ordinary man. Because, I mean, crucifixion, you, you died by suffocation. You couldn't even whimper at the end, let alone cry out. And so when he sees that event, he realizes this man's life was not taken from him. He gave up his life. Truly, this man was the son of God. And Mark's point all along through the gospel is that when you look at the miracles, when you hear the teaching, when you see all of the power of Jesus, you do gain some clarity as to who he is. But if you want to recognize Jesus as the Son of God, you have to go to the cross. It is only at the cross when you see our bleeding Savior dying. Only there do we come and recognize, truly, this is the Son of God. And so he's driving us there all along. Every other time, people don't get it. And here, a Roman centurion of all people gets it. So that's why all good preaching goes to the cross. Because it's only at the cross that we see him revealed as the Son of God. One other little detail, just because I think i got time for this. When Jesus is on trial, 
and he's before Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas asks him, are you the son of the most blessed one? And Jesus says, I am. He says, ego a me, which is, they thought, blasphemy, because he's saying like, I am, which is the name of God. And so he fully embraces when he's asked, are you the son of the most blessed one? He goes, I am, ego a me. But then later when he's asked, are you the king of the Jews? He goes, you say so. He, he, he doesn't like really embrace that title, but when it comes to someone asking, are you the son of God? He's like, absolutely, I am. This is where Mark's pointing us. Well, let's look at the end of the gospel. No gospel ends more bizarre than Mark. It ends as abruptly as it begins. All right. Look at the end of verse 8. I've got I, I to talk about this before we read 1 through verse 8, chapter 16. And all of y'all probably have the little parenthetical notes there that say some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, 9 through 20, and then 9 through 20 is all in parentheses. You might even have a Bible that doesn't include it. So you're wondering, what in the world am I talking about? Well, the oldest manuscripts that we have don't have this at all as the Gospel of Mark. It is not written like Mark. It doesn't read like Mark. Um, and none of the oldest manuscripts have it. That's not saying it's not true. Um, what's saying, it is saying is likely it was added on to Mark later. But it probably doesn't work with Mark's intent for the Gospel. Mark didn't want his Gospel to end there. And so I think if you read that as part of Mark, you're missing Mark's point. He wants it to end in verse 8 uh, for, for a very strong reason. Such a strong reason, and it's so strong, people probably felt uncomfortable with it. <laughs> like, we, we need to include some other things. So they put that. Plus, it's also, you know, where you get the handling scorp scorpions and serpents and drinking poison. And so uh, if you all want to take that and do it, run with it. Uh, let's, let's read these eight verses. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, uh, brought spices so that um, they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You can kind of see the authenticity right there when it says, go tell the disciples and Peter. <laughs> you just love how like Peter's like, he's part of the story. But what a bizarre way to end the book. These are the last sentence again. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
Now, you can almost see why people added. You're like, well, we can't end it there. Let's, let's tell the rest of the story because, you know, it ends like, um, it ends with saying all these great things about, look at verse 20, if you wanted to add that last little part. It says, and they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. It's like, that's a good ending right there. That's Hollywood right there. That's what, you know, how you're supposed to have those happy endings. And that happened. I'm not taking away from the truth of that. That happened, but that's not Mark's point. Remember, it's a biographical sermon. And what he's saying is this. All through this gospel, I've been drawing you in to identify with the disciples. I've told you of their failures constantly. I've been hammering this home, right? So so you fail, but Jesus doesn't let us go, all right? And now in light of the cross, we understand who he is. We were blind before, but now we see it. He's the son of God. And now, just like the disciples here in this, we haven't seen the risen Christ. We've been told about it. The Holy Spirit has confirmed that, yes, Jesus is risen, but none of us here have actually seen the risen Christ. We're just told this message. And so now Mark leaves it open-ended. He's like, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do, disciples? You have failed them over and over and over again. But Jesus now has revealed himself to you. He has now risen from the dead. I'm telling you this. I know you haven't seen him yet, but he has risen. What are you going to do? And he is hoping that same urgency that he has been putting forward in that whole gospel hits us. I mean, remember, this was oral. They're reading this. And you can almost just picture, like, the, you know, the scroll being rolled up after this. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Can you imagine the person reading that and then the silence and him just looking around at all the people in that room who profess to be Christians? What impact does that have? It's like, we've got to share We've got to live a life of singular purpose in light of what Christ has done. And so that's the point of Mark as you read through it. I, I, hope as you, I hope you take time this week to kind of read through it with a fresh lens and you walk away with a more heart of a worship, more of a heart of worship for Jesus as the Son of God. And pray with me. Jesus, we love you. Lord, forgive us for so often wanting the things that really don't clearly point to you as the Son of God. We don't want to take up a cross and follow you. We don't like the the weakness that we see on the cross. I pray that for everyone here that we would not be ashamed of the cross. We would boldly proclaim it because it's there that we see Jesus our Savior, as the Son of God. And I pray that you would give us a boldness that we do not possess in ourselves to share the message of the risen King. It would be ever on our lips. We would not be running away scared and frightened, but we would live a life with a singular purpose of making this declaration. Thank you, Jesus, for your work on the cross your work of redemption for changing our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.